to the House of Learning podcast produced by A Jesus Church College. Join hosts Richard Tamburo and Molly Inman as they chat with other faculty and guests about church, the Bible, theology, and learning the way of Jesus here in Portland. Today, we're taking a look at the cry of dereliction. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. It's Richard and Tim here, and it is Easter time. It is. And Tim has the, uh, I was going to say dubious honor, I didn't want to put it down, but it is kind of, you know, if you get to preach Sunday, Easter Sunday, it's all the good feels, all the celebration. (laughs) Good Friday, which you've got, is all of the, uh, I don't know, how do we stare at the face of that darkness and contemplate it well? Like yeah. that's harder for us yeah. um, to do. So Feels like one of the most mis misnamed days of the year. Yeah, you would call it Good Friday. Yeah, but it is good. That's the yeah the paradox mm-hmm. paradox of it. And so um, yeah, we were having our teaching team meeting, and Tim was talking about all the things, and um just realizing there is going to be a theological elephant in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you're, and actually this gets released Good Friday. So some people, a few people may listen to this before coming in the evening. Most people probably listen to it after though. So, um, you know, you're wanting to draw us in to like continue to walk along this journey of Jesus, understand what he's doing, understand what it means to us. But then Jesus says these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Um, referencing Psalm 22. And it, I, well, theologians have wrestled with what to make of this. Mm. Um, you know, there's a kind of, I, I guess, the extreme ends of the spectrum. One extreme end of the spectrum would be, well, no, Jesus is part of the Trinity, like why like Jesus is not forsaken there's no forsakenness there's no separation there's no fracture like there's no problem here right he's just quoting psalm 22 to get us to think about something it has nothing to do with his experience and then at the other end of the spectrum is no this is exactly his experience and maybe in such an extreme way that it even threatens the unity of the trinity mm-hmm. that the, the second person has been forsaken by the first person of the trinity and so that's the spectrum, and we we want to navigate our way a little to like what are some of the what's the orthodox box to play in here? Yeah, to, to think about it. Yeah, um, because it is um, well, there's not like three verses we can go to to answer <laughs> the question. Yeah, so it's a little bit of like we're trying to piece together the jigsaw, use some of our more clear theology to help guide us to understand like what could be going on. Um, but I, I want to ask you, first of all, why is it an elephant that's worth poking? Like, why do you think it's important? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny because it's not, um, it's definitely one of those things. We have a few of these in Christianity where our language sometimes betrays us. Like we, mm. we say things, we were just talking about this, like things wind their way into our, worship music and we're like do we do we really believe yeah, that's that what we think the father turned his face away like huh i don't that's an interesting concept to think about like you know 
uh, and you know, it's our music often betrays things that we we kind of believe in the back of our head, and then you know, we start pushing into it, the theology around it. It's like, well, actually, I don't know. Uh, we we you know, every time we quote the Great Shema, one of the largest, hugest, most significant aspects of that declaration is God is one. There, how do you separate? How yeah. do you divide oneness? How do you take a God who has existed, and by his very nature, one of the things that sets him apart and defines him is his oneness, like wrapped up in humanity, wrapped up in the person of Jesus, and yet still one, you know? And it's so great because, you know, 90% of the time we can make sense of things like that. We look at verses in Philippians and we try to kind of piecemeal things together, even from other parts of the scriptures. And we're like, yeah, I think we might be able to figure out how this whole Trinity thing works. But then we bump into things like this, which is complicated, and it it seems to express things about the nature of how we think about God that really fly in the face of our theology. And uh, yeah, so I think a part of the reason why it's worth poking at this elephant a little bit, and obviously I think, you know, with the full acknowledgement of the fact that there's mystery in here, there's things that are, are difficult for our small little brains to get our, yeah. our minds around, but... I think it's worth poking at because there are some um, parameters. There's some there's some falsehoods that can leak yeah. into our thinking that if we uh, don't poke at this, we can allow those things to become our, our truer understanding of how Christ functioned. And I think it's important that we don't let those things creep in. You yeah, know? And, and who the Father is. Exactly, yeah. Like, I guess one stark way of saying it is, uh, if on the cross Jesus represents me, mm-hmm. And the father can't look at me. Yeah. Then, you know, that's then a theological understanding I take away. Right. Um, that and, and the nuance of like out, outside of Christ's redemptive work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like the the father when when sin's a problem, the father can't look at me. Yeah. Um, or or has to forsake me. Yeah. Um, and because that's a actually a more no spiky word, yeah. Than just can't look at, yeah. Forsake exactly. is is abandon word, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and how easy it is. I mean, we run into this in our own lives. We run into it talking to people. If you're a pastor, you talk to more people about it. But mm-hmm. there are people who are in Jesus and still have a theology that when they feel like sin's a problem in their life, the Father has to distance Himself from them. Yeah. So. It's a it's a big deal. Yeah, we face this all the time. I, I would say it's probably in my, as I'm walking people through pastoral care moments, all of the time, people would never, I mean, they don't, they believe it's by grace alone, right? It's not a workspace faith. And yet we trip into workspaceness. It's like, well, except when there's sin in my life, I've, I've got to fight my way back to God. Yeah. Like, you know, when I've got... If I've, if I've made a mistake or if I've fallen into some pattern, like, man, it's on me. Man, that's a scary way of thinking about, the, you know, yeah. thinking about God and thinking about how my faith works. And flies in, I was just talking to someone about it last week, it it flies in the face of some foundational theology, which, surprise, surprise, you read the beginning of Genesis and mm-hmm. it can often set you straight. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve sin mm-hmm. and God pursues them finds them, talks to them. Yeah. And has to cut them off, not from himself, but from the tree of life. Right. Like God never says we've got to kick them out of the garden because they'll 
we'll see them around. Yeah, or we don't want to see them anymore. Yeah. Oh my goodness, like yeah. that, that's not what's going on. Yeah. Because and, and it's so poignant actually, and we can read Genesis like, oh my goodness, it's going so wrong. Mm-hmm. But also in the midst of it going so wrong, it's a profound story about how God keeps showing up. Yeah. So they sin and God comes and finds them. And if God just like can't look at sin, like there must be something wrong with God's omniscience because he knows where Adam and Eve are. He knows what they've done, right. but he's still looking for them. Yeah. So that doesn't make any sense if right. God can't look at sin. But then outside the garden, Cain pops up, kills mm-hmm. his brother. What does God do? Yep. Comes, finds him, yeah. talks to him, mm-hmm. blesses him even in his unrepentance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so it just... I think there's a way of telling the gospel story which is very simplistic. Yeah. Which is a kind of a gospel of like, you're a sinner. That means God can't even look at you. He hates you. He mm-hmm. has to forsake you. He has to separate from you. You don't want that. And Jesus can make it better. Yeah. And there is a problem. And Jesus can make it better. Mm-hmm. But if we misdescribe the problem, um, it it's a shame because it, it almost breaks down the journey towards god the journey of the pursuit the journey of the reconciliation and turns it's because we've had a fascination with making converts instead of disciples Mm. um you know actually for lots of people their relationship with god grows Mm -hmm. and at some point in its growth they say oh actually i i think jesus requires the kind of relationship where i call him lord Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and things change radically Mm -hmm. and then it continues to grow Mm-hmm. And so if if we have this kind of theology that God just, if sin's in the room, God leaves. Yeah. Um, there can be no prior journey. Yeah. And you know, it's one of the things that was so offensive to the Pharisees, right? I mean, over and over again, Jesus, it's like he had like heat seeking when it came to like sinners and brokenness and disease and the demonic. He just like... he. It was like he went towards it. Yeah. And, and you know, everything, every time he stepped into a story, he left this like wake of healing and this wake of restoration and this wake of wholeness. Well, none of that stuff would have been help, would have been even needed if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus kept stepping into yeah. people's sin. You know, he, and, and that, and that, and it was so offensive, right? To the Pharisees, he heals people and he says, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are like, wait, what? Nobody can do that. Jesus is like, well, actually, I can. Yeah. You know, and, and this is what I do. Like, I'm not, I'm not afraid of your sin. I'm not. And what a, what a good, what good news. You want to think about the gospel as being good news. What good news that Jesus is not afraid of our sin. Like he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't push back. He go like, oh, well, you know what? I don't, I can't have anything to do with you. And even God, like the father, like they're not afraid of us. They, they see through it and they go to us, they just don't leave us there. And that's the power. That's the beauty of Jesus's healing ability and healing power. And something unique about Christianity, I think. Yeah. um, There's a lot of fear around our problems Mm -hmm. in most other religions. And, And there is in Christianity too. It's just, it's not the only dynamic at play. Right. So our, our brokenness, it can heap shame, uh, failure, guilt. It, it, even sometimes, though, it's uh, and there's biblical stories where it manifests as just like an immobilization of hope. Mm-hmm. 
And it's not even the fear of retribution. It's just the fear that it's not going to get better. Yeah. And it makes people want to go like hide under the duvet, mm-hmm. which solves nothing. Right. But we do have our, like lots of our coping mechanisms and our culture of dealing with problems is sometimes where well, if we wait a while, then I'll be able to talk to that person again. Right. You know? mm-hmm. So as if like if we just hide under the duvet, when we poke our head out, somehow we'll be better, the world will be better, or like we'll be better with God. Yeah. And you know, so so many religions, philosophies, like uh, approaches are are ways to try to get ourselves out from under the duvet quicker. And Christianity is unique in that Jesus comes, sits on the bed, yeah, pulls back the duvet, and yes. says. How are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, and like I love you. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that moment, yeah. Um, it, I don't know that that verse. You know, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Yeah, it just boggles my mind how we've almost given in. Like the one of the enemy strategies is to move us by fear and mm-hmm. guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. Um. God actually wants to bring freedom from those things and move us by love. And yet the church has so often, so deeply made such a terrible mistake of trying to do the gospel the enemy's way. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a tragedy. Um, but the conversation is going on right. to learn and rectify that. But yeah. those those roots run deep, especially in Western culture. Yeah, which then, you know, you think about this conversation that we're having and you try to think like, okay, so how do, what, what's the connection point then? Like, how do I connect to what the story that's being told, you know, whether in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus cries out and, and he seems desperate like for, for his father and yet his father isn't there, you know, and that's the perception. That's the experience that Jesus is having. Yeah. It, I also I want to be fair to the song, yeah. So because it it's a it's a line from a song yeah. that people often use to mean yeah God can't look upon sin, right. which is another a phrase. Yeah, but actually the line in the song is like how great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away yeah. as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Yeah, and Stuart Townsend who wrote that could have meant exactly what we were just talking about. Right. He could also, though, have meant as Jesus was suffering, the father was just so grieved to yeah. see his son suffer that he couldn't watch. Yeah. Which is a... I'm going to choose to believe that. Really different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. like really different take <laughs> on things. Yeah. But actually, um, and because you've been thinking about this a bit mm-hmm. more... Um, and I haven't read much on this recently, mm. but I'm trying to think, I'm not sure that there's really a major strand of interpretation of Psalm 22, which does say that, that the father just couldn't bear to watch. Yeah, well, it's really fascinating because when you read, and I, again, like I don't spend a lot of time in these in these texts, but you read some of the commentary input and depending upon what camp you fall in, and I'll just leave it at that, uh, th- th- there's people have to do all sorts of gymnastics to try to describe what's going on here. Like, um, I mean, people even going so far as to saying that actually, no, on the cross, Jesus was simply just quoting Psalm 22 yeah. um, 
just to say, hey, that prophecy was about me. And that's it. Like there was no actual emotion in it. There was no actual, because certainly God could not, you know, actually turn away from his son, you know? Um, so there's, so there's that kind of like, you know, certain camps that were like, they talk about it that way. And then there's other camps that talk about it from a much more like, you know, kind of, yeah, God's theolog, you know, theologically, like he can't handle sin and Jesus became sin. Uh, and so he had to like, look away. Yeah. And so, the, I mean, those are literally the camps you can see the different interpretations yeah. going on with Psalm 22. Um, and then, but, you know, and, and it's not just Psalm 22. It's, I think people tend to take an approach to Jesus's, some of his sayings at the end of his life. Like, yeah. Father, if you're like, I, I don't want to do this, but if it's your will, right, I'll, I'll do it. You know, yeah. like that, um, I don't know, the, the temptation, the wrestling yeah. to, to follow through. Um, similarly, you know, there are, are people who are like, oh, no, Jesus always just fully wanted to go to the cross. Right. And yep. and it wasn't hard for him at all. Yeah. But he wanted to kind of reveal that it ought to be hard for us to think about it, so he said that. Yeah. You know? Right. So it, it kind of puts things in this kind of camp of some somewhat of uh, an illusion of yep. what's going on. Yeah, totally. And and honestly, there's, I mean, it's it's... Psalm 22 is tricky. I mean, you read, you read other places in the, through the Psalms where it seems like it's pointing at Jesus or Jesus is pointing at it, um, depending upon how you think about it. But Psalm 22 is one of those places where, I mean, there's like six direct quote. I mean, clearly like Matthew was like pulling straight from Psalm 22. He used the same phraseology translated, you know, um, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, I mean, clearly drawing from yeah. that psalm. Uh, and so, there's, I mean, it's really a tricky one because it's, it feels like as you read it, man, this feels like this could be Jesus saying these words. You mm-hmm. know, obviously there's places where it, it like most um, prophetic psalmist language, it um, obviously can point into both the moment on the cross, but also beyond that moment to to where Jesus would be crowned King of Kings uh, at the end of days. And so there's it bounces around a little, but there's still a sense where like some people they just don't know how to read Psalm 22 because of it. And um, and I think that's part of like you know our you know again you asked a question kind of kick things off why poke this you know elephant in the room I I think a part of it is is because there's two types there's two conversations going on. There's like this theological conversation about the nature of God and how does God actually interact with himself and things like sin and reality. Um, but there's also like there's the humanity conversation about Jesus and who he is and like what what's going on inside of Jesus's mind and heart in yeah. that moment. Like the real human, the 100% human Jesus. What's mm-hmm. going on in his heart in this moment um, and why does it matter? And why does that matter? Because the two are deeply connected. Very connected. Yeah. yeah. And it's in a very important conversation. Because yeah. we, um, yeah, when we think about God atoning for sin, we can tend to emphasize that the death penalty is paid. Yeah. And that's the bit that matters. But actually, the Bible talks an awful lot about how Jesus is suffering. His experience of mm-hmm. suffering matters for God's work of restoration. Yeah. And so 
yeah, there is more going on. Um, so let's let's set to one side the illusory interpretation. Yeah, because frankly, I just think it makes a, a kind of weird mockery of most of Jesus's sayings. Yeah, and kind of it's it's a version of the incarnation where Jesus is Superman. Yeah, it's not really in line with the major creeds of Christendom. Mm. Um, it's of dubious orthodoxy. <laughs> so we're going to have to be committed. Like when Jesus cries out, like, why have you forsaken me? Um, he's trying to reveal something of, yeah. of his experience and of what's actually happening. And so um, if, and, and if we took the view, God can't look upon sin. He was like, Second Corinthians five twenty one says he he became sin, mm-hmm. he was made sin. Um, then oh easy, well, not as easy as you think, right? Like, but but somewhat easy because like oh well the father has to look away. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and then we have to wrestle with, and what does that mean for the understanding of a like united trinitarian God? Yeah, um, so that's tricky. But um, that it does give a sort of explanation of of why there is a forsakenness mm-hmm. in that moment. Um, but we we can still like get our teeth into it if we go for the more nuanced things, mm-hmm. you know, of like if if God is the kind of God who pursues sinners, who mm-hmm. comes and finds them in the moment where Christ is bearing the sin of the world, mm-hmm. um, why would he experience a forsakenness by the Father? Yeah. Because it's actually, it's a cry that's laden with the expectation that when you need saving, God shows up. Yeah. That's why it's a, almost a surprise when you come across Psalm 22 and read it, is it's, it's the unexpected experience of David. Yeah. And so, so that's that's something we that we kind of have to join together. Like there's some reason right now when God is not doing what he normally would do. Yeah. He's not rescuing his son. Um and, and theologically it's a little bit easier. Um, you know, like Jesus has to die. Yeah. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have decided Jesus is going to die because that's going to make it a difference to the reconciliation of the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the father is, he doesn't, I don't say doesn't want to. I'm sure there's a relational aspect there that's more complicated than just like, yeah, you know. But um, yeah, the, fa- the father isn't going to derail his plan. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's going to end in death. It, yeah, it has to end in death. Yeah, and I actually think that's a part of what makes this moment in history almost, I mean, you, you asked a question when I was prepping for this, like how, how, how do you invite people to sit in that moment of Good Friday? Mm. And I think it's what makes this moment so unique and so powerful and yet also so good for us. Mm is that this is our human experience. For all the times that we wait and anticipate and pray for the miracle, 
more often than not, we sit in the pain of the loss. Mm. I mean, how many of us have the story so we can think back on of the people that we've prayed for, of the people, the bedsides that we've sat by, of the difficult moments in, in life where the end answer wasn't what we were hoping for. It mm-hmm. wasn't the one that we were hoping for. It actually ends in death. And the invitation here, I think on Good Friday, is one that is the, probably the one of the most human uh, experiences of reality that we can have, which is we can know that God is with us even when we're dying, yeah. even when we don't feel him. He's still there. Yeah. And we know it because God did not abandon his son. And Jesus hung on a cross and he died. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's that kind of God has promised to redeem pain, to mm-hmm. heal pain, yeah. to eventually wipe away every tear. Yeah. He has not promised he will prevent all pain. Right. Yeah. And so that's... I mean, he he has said we will we will get to a yeah. stage of the universe when it's restored and pain will be no more. Yeah. But until we get there, that's not actually a promise we've got. Right. And so we are going to bump into experiences yeah. that are cruciform in this way. And and it doesn't take it doesn't take one ounce away from Resurrection Sunday. Mm-hmm. Like we know we do know what's coming, but it's the same, right? I mean, it's the same experience. It's just our delay for resurrection is a little bit longer than Jesus's was, yeah. you know, like his experience was like he died on a Friday and he was, he rose on the Sunday. But the reality is, is that like in that moment, God was still good. God mm-hmm. was good on Saturday. He was still good. And I think that that's the, I think that's what's a part of the, uh, you know, we talk again, why are we poking at this elephant is because it's so important for us to not like go of that, like, in this moment, God has not ceased to be good. Yeah. And in this moment, Jesus, <laughs> in His loss, is not. Um, it, it's not like it. Even though it's like the most horrific moment in history, it's not like it's. This is all evil, and this is the end of the story. Yeah. It's like actually, there's a lot of evil, but it's not the end of the story. So let's poke a bit more, like Jesus's experience. Because Jesus doesn't say, my God, my God, why do I feel the threat that you might forsake me, but actually I know you haven't because I know the plan that we agreed on and I know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's a good question. Right? This does seem to be an experience of, Father, where are you? Yeah. And this may be a tone of desperation, pain, confusion. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the, the very idea that the Son of God would experience confusion is bizarre yeah theologically that that god could be confused you know so so we have to do we'll have to do some theology to answer the question but just like what what do you see in his experience like what's he how's he relating and seeing himself how's he seeing god in this moment yeah well again you know we 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 acknowledge the fact that jesus in being 100 percent god is also 100 percent human and now that's one of those places where it's like, I don't know why 100% and 100% equal 100%, but 
for some reason, when it comes to God, they do. And uh, there's, there is some mystery in there for sure. But in this aspect of who Jesus is, his deep humanity, I think he, he enters into an experience the way that we would enter into an experience. Mm-hmm. There's not like some, well, maybe there is. A, a, Jesus doesn't pull it. I mean, according to the New Testament, we, we know that Jesus doesn't pull that curtain back and say like, oh, that's right, God's still there. You know, he doesn't seem to do that. More often than not, what we see in the person of Jesus is the experience of the moment. Uh, the you know the story that came to mind as I was actually preparing for the Good Friday gathering was that same story of of him with Lazarus. You know, Jesus hears um, that his friend Lazarus is dying, and in this moment makes a decision like, "There's stuff that I'm doing here." Because of God's glory, I'm I'm not even going to go right away because he's going to die. Lazarus is going to die. And so Jesus delays, and sure enough, Lazarus dies, and he ends up <clears throat> in the village with Lazarus's sisters. And Lazarus was clearly a friend of his. And he gets there's this beautiful moment in scripture where literally, like he's out there and Lazarus's friends are around, his sisters are there, everybody's weeping, and Jesus weeps. It's like, he just cries. Like his heart breaks. He, this is his friend. He's his, he sees the grief around him and he enters in. This is not a pretend thing. It's not like him going like, uh, you know, well, I, I guess I should show emotion right now so everybody can see it. No, this is Jesus, the human encountering and experiencing the grief of the moment, knowing full well that he is the resurrection and the life and that he is about to break the cords of death and call his friend out of non-existent or well death out of death back into human life like he knows he's about to do that and yet he still weeps and i think there's i think we gain insight into like how jesus experiences the present it's like he doesn't, and we, man, there's so much for us to learn in this in the Western society, but it's like he doesn't even allow himself to run ahead with the story, knowing full well where the story is going. Yeah. He chooses to walk each step in the moment that he's in. I think about, you know, in, in Matthew 5, where he's, he's saying, like, these are the kind of people that are blessed. And one in, in that list are like, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted, you know? There's, there's a sense where Jesus understands the powerful weight of presence, mm. of being in the present moment. And I would argue also allowing God in the midst of that presence to let God be the comforter, to let community be the comfort, to, to actually sit in that togetherness in that moment. So that's what he was experiencing outside of that tomb was, was the presence of community in grief and him participating in it. Mm. And, I, and I think there's something there. Like, I, I think Jesus isn't so... Um, <laughs> it's like, even though he could, he, could, he could pull back the curtain to give himself a little hope and mm-hmm. say, like, well, I know this is what's about to happen. He doesn't. He chooses to be in the present. And Yes, it's an interesting question. Like, as Jesus is walking to the tomb... Yeah. Does he know he's going to raise him? Mm. Or does God tell him to do that 
after he after grieves. He, yeah. Um, it's another one of those like illusion versus reality yeah. interpretations. Like, yeah. did Jesus weep because he just wanted to give the appearance of empathy? Right. That's not real empathy. No. I think Jesus wept because it was really sad. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, like it really was sad. Yeah. And and when your being is one of those that has essentially you know predates all of existence. I mean, that's a part of you know. I I think it's almost like a greater. Um, statement for us as humans to say like look like jesus was this yeah so we we have permission and and the jesus interacting with the reality of human experience yeah because his divine perspective on things you know like god the father maybe not bursting into tears because lazarus has died because he knows what he's going to do yeah. or is outside of time or like a yeah. whole bunch of things. The experience may be different. That's still reality. That's the divine reality. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we can piece together some bits of the theological jigsaw puzzle. Like one of them is like the great Gregory of Nazianzus's phrase, what is not assumed yeah. is not healed. Right. And so what God is trying to do is heal the absolute fullest extent of the human experience of brokenness. Mm-hmm. And so that includes, even though we know there is a God of hope, we encounter like the dark night of hopelessness and confusion in, and pain and suffering. Um, God actually needs to experience it to be able to heal it. Like he needs to right. assume it to be able to heal it. And so there's a... I don't, I don't know. It, it's um, I don't know the the multifaceted nature of atonement. Yeah, you know, I, I'm thinking again, like in the Western, especially Protestant tradition, we're more familiar with talking about oh, he had to suffer these things because it was a penalty. Yep. It was suffering that was penal in nature. It was mm-hmm. re- um, retribution for sin. Um, but really, when it comes to retribution, uh, death seems to come more in the foreground than the experience of suffering. Right. The experience of suffering seems to have a bit more to do with healing. Like by his wounds, we are healed. Yeah. And so there's this other aspect where God is kind of... um, And it's almost like uh, Jesus became incarnate, became a fully human nature, Mm -hmm. expressed his personhood through that human... like lens on the world yeah but then the incarnation to be fully human to to take on all of humanity continued throughout his life Mm -hmm. and at the cross he's still taking on more of humanness yeah and experience and and experiencing what we experience as sinners yeah Mm -hmm. you know and and it's interesting because he you know he took on the nature actually not just of human flesh but of sinful human flesh right so he'd already taken on the experiences of having to walk um and confront temptation Mm -hmm. and weakness and rely on the spirit and live by faith and uh, learn about god and learn about who you are and you know so there's loads of stuff in those experiences Mm -hmm. but then there's something where it kind of comes to a climax at the cross 
Um, Because this is, I don't know, like the temptation in the wilderness. You know, the devil took him up to a mountain and he never cried out, oh God, where are you? Right, yeah. Like there's something in this moment when he's experiencing separation. And, And not because God has said, I don't love you anymore because you're now sin or I don't can't look at you anymore. Mm-hmm. But just because God's saying, I'm going to let you die. Yeah. And, and you know, and the Gethsemane moment like makes it clear that as Jesus faces actually dying, mm-hmm. like every natural human drive emotion, thought, reflex, everything about how a a human is wired cries out, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so now all of these no's are interacting with a, and I'm not going to do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so it's an experience of all of his, and I don't, you know, maybe it's all of his sinful human wiring. Maybe there's a version of like fully redeemed, fully restored humans where we would face death and not be scared or something. Right. I don't know. But he's taken on sinful flesh. Mm-hmm. So it's a moment where every fiber of his being that feels like it's the most natural thing in the world to not want to die and to fear it and you know all of that stuff is going to experience crushing disappointment. Yeah. Yep. You know, and so... It's just interesting then, like, and it was, so we've talked about, like, how that experience is meaningful to us. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that Jesus, you know, associates, like, when it says he suffered in all points like we do. So yeah. he's a high priest who, wherever you're at, he can meet you. He yeah. can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess then there's, like, a couple of theological questions uh, one is the like, how's that even possible <laughs> for for like yeah. this God man yeah. to actually experience that? Mm-hmm. Um, but the other is, um, how does that actually heal? Right. Yeah. Because the empathy is great. You know, you could have the best counselor in the world with experiences so similar to your own, mm. and they can look you in the eye and weep with you and understand. But if they then turn around and say, I don't really know how to make a difference. Yeah. It's almost worse. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so so I guess there's those two big now like theological elephants in the room. Like how does this actually, because I, I, I can, you know, pull out Gregory's phrase. Oh, it's, it's assumed, so it's healed. Yeah. But especially in our Western mindset, we just want to know how. Because yeah. if I can't understand how something works, I don't really feel like I can trust it. It's why yeah. we're, you know, why well, I say we, we don't all do it in a physical way, but we're kind of obsessed with taking things apart to see how they work. Yeah, for sure. You know, for like sure. We, we we do have that bit in our culture. Yeah. and so, I, so maybe let's start with that bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm, and it is the million dollar question and there's a bit of mystery, but yeah, we should try. Well, and I think that's a part of this is as long as we're allowed, you know, you allow for <laughs> the space of like, there is mystery in this for sure. But like, you know, there's that line, um, in the screw tape letters where uh, Lewis is writing about, um, you know, the demonic experience of the Christian. And 
one of the things that he t- he points out, I'm butchering the quote, but at one point he points at the fact that like there's like basically no more powerful moment for the believer when he's literally at the end of his rope, feels completely abandoned, feels like there is like there's nothing pointing to the reality of a God, and then he chooses to believe anyways. And that's like that's like what makes the demons shake because that's like, that's faith that goes beyond demonic faith. That's the faith of, of a son of God or Mm -hmm. daughter of God. And I think, and like, again, this is all couched in the, in mystery, but I think there's something about the nature of feeling forsaken and even expressing it to God, but in faith, Mm -hmm that is extraordinarily powerful. It's, and I think that's where, that's where some of the touch of that healing is, you know, like I, I think the healing comes in that crazy crossover space of like, I will believe. Mm. I will believe God. I don't feel like you're there. I feel alone. I feel like these everything around me is pointing in the opposite direction. My own flesh is screaming at me that you have left me. Mm. But into your hands, I commit my spirit. I mean, those are Jesus's actual final words. Yeah. And there's something in there where it's like, it's not like I I don't believe. I mean, we'll I guess we won't know until we can talk to Jesus about this face to face. I don't think it's like God like kind of showed up suddenly beside Jesus at the cross and was like, "Hey, son, I'm actually still here. Like, don't freak out." I actually think that was the path. I think Jesus walked it, got to the end, and said in a defiant cry of faith, "I still believe." Yeah, and I think that's the power. Like, I think that's where true healing comes from. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think I, that's a yeah. part, that's at least a part of it. But it's, it's turning that from metaphorical yeah. to substantial yeah. that matters, I think, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, Jesus can have the experience of overcoming that mm-hmm. darkness yeah. and being able to truly say, I commit myself to the father, Yeah, you know, and, and I think it's important then we underline he did that as a human being. Yeah, exactly. So, so important. So the Philippians two, you yep. know, how can Jesus not be just the weirdest human in the world because he's got a mind that's a human experience of the world, mm-hmm. but also a person who's having the divine experience of all of reality at the same yep. time. And it would seem to wash out. Yeah. The any the vertical nature of any of his human experience, but Philippians two says he emptied himself. Yeah, didn't grasp, didn't cling to that way of being, mm-hmm. and he's still divine. He still has a divine nature, but he chose to express one hundred percent of his person mm-hmm. through his human nature. Yeah, yeah, and you know, so which is why it can say things like you know he grew um, in his relationship with. Men and with God, yeah, mm-hmm. like he had to, he had to, he had to learn things, mm-hmm. and so I, I think it's what Jesus is actually doing in that moment, though, and that's why him doing it as a human is so important. <coughs> um, if he did it by his divinity, mm-hmm. he would be 
exampling something for us that, mm-hmm. the, that we can overcome darkness with faith. Mm-hmm. We can find hope. Um, but we would say, yeah, it's all very well for you, though I don't know how I would do that. Yeah. What Jesus actually does is he manifests the how of a human being doing it yep, yep. and makes it real in the world. He, mm-hmm. he instantiates mm-hmm. it, that thing. And I think it's that combination, and it's very Trinitarian, of he relates to the Father as one he knows is his Father, yeah. who loves him and he can hope him. And he also relates to the Spirit as the one who's revealed things, talked to him, strengthened yeah. him, worked through him. And there's something about us in our sinful brokenness that means that those two coming together, mm-hmm. um, like either they can't get into our brokenness in a way that makes enough of a difference to set us free from sin or because of their holiness mm-hmm. and, and our brokenness, we can't get into them enough mm-hmm. to make a difference. But because Jesus was sinless, mm-hmm. he could actually make that reality. And now he's he's got something to give away. Yep. It, and it's it's not just a metaphor, it's a reality. Mm-hmm. Like it's an actual thing Jesus has created. This kind of Trinitarian, it's like the Trini- Trinity now includes humanity. Mm-hmm. Which is like what Jesus said, like, Father, I, I want that like they should be one just as you and I are one. Mm-hmm. And so like he he made something not just possible. <coughs> he he didn't just show us, oh, you guys could have done this all the time. No, we couldn't have done it. Right. Jesus had to do something mm-hmm. to create this reality. Um and then the something then about Jesus is now able to present that possibility and that reality as a human being, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which now has created a door, like a bridge. His humanity is now a bridge by which we can enter into the Trinity, Mm -hmm. enter into relationship with the Trinity. Be be partakers of that divine nature. Exactly. Yeah. So there's there's something metaphysical going on. Yeah. And there's, you know, whenever theologians are doing metaphysics we have to be aware that we're <laughs> we're doing creative theology yeah because we're, we're trying to grasp for our way of thinking about the mechanics of the world yeah and use them to explain what's going on yeah and in every culture as time and history winds on the tools of explaining the world keep changing mm-hmm. so it's it's our way of wrestling with it um, yeah. not the way of wrestling with it for sure and and I, I totally agree. Um, I, but I also think that there's like there's just something about the nature of a faith in our society that we live in now that like we we've kind of been nurtured for the last I don't know hundred years or so on a on a diet of pretty easy faith, like relatively easy faith. Uh, obviously, I'm talking about in the West. Yeah, and. You know, I think a part of the invitation of the cross is understanding faith as something that literally walks us down the path of suffering. Like that it's not, um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, we don't, Jesus didn't go to the cross because he enjoyed pain, but he went through the cross because there's some aspect of that 
experience that actually takes a type of faith that is, it's unique. Mm. And, you know, I think, you know, as part of the reason why this last uh, week, you know, we, we spent time, you know, talking about, um, or, uh, having the church open so people could come and pray through the stations of the cross, you know, and it's, it's not an exercise in reflecting on all of the ways that Jesus suffered, though, it is actually an exercise on that, yeah. but that's not what it's. That's not what its primary is. The suffering isn't the only thing getting revealed, right? Exactly, yeah. and and it's and it's to understand that there was a path here that Jesus was taking, and it was a path that went through suffering to get to freedom, through suffering to get to something greater. And um, we, and I, and I get this. Like I'm, mean, I'm human, right? So I understand. Like I, it would be so great if all of the great richest rewards of my faith came easily, <laughs> but that's just not the way it works. Yeah. You know, and there's an aspect of understanding that faith is tied to suffering. And that's why there's an invitation in Christ. In Christ and when he's saying like, you got you to pick up your cross and follow me because this is, this is a path of suffering. Yeah. You know? It's so deeply connected to so many things, mm-hmm. you know, like David saying, you know, I won't, I can't worship with something that doesn't cost me anything. Right. Right. Like yeah. worship should cost. Yeah. Faith should cost. Yeah. You know, it, it's actually really interesting to think of the cross as an expression of worship. Yeah. From mm-hmm. the, the son to the father. Yeah. Because it is. Yeah. Like we tend to think of worship as like, I'm going to sing about the joyful things God's done to make myself feel really happy and warm inside. Yeah. But at bottom, worship is about like, commitment to and alignment with what God wants to do. Yeah. So like the cross is the ultimate act of worship that costs everything. Yeah. You know, in the face of the the hardest things. Mm-hmm. Um it's that faith, but it's it's also like when Jesus says pick up you have to pick up your cross to follow me. Mm-hmm. It's it's to follow the way of God doing things. Yeah. You know, We've, our culture says um, the right way of doing things should be like well-supported, easy, comfortable, mm-hmm. you know, just all these things. Um, but God's way of doing things, and, and um, it's a result of the fall. So there's a c- complexity here. Yeah, for it, sure. God in the beginning set humans and and the whole of creation doing things. Um, but without the it's going to fight back kind of element, right. you know. But but now we're in that zone of the story. Yeah, God's way of doing things is he restores by suffering. His mission, like people are reached by suffering. Um, people are blessed by it costing us something. Um it's just an interesting how all of these things, it, it would be really hard for us to really have a vibrant biblical faith without a worship that costs us something. It'd be really hard for us to really thrive on Jesus's mission if we didn't have a faith that in, involved mm-hmm. us counting the cost of suffering when we trust. Right. You know, like the, the whole thing comes as a set. And I think often the Western church has tried, especially the modern Western church, has tried to have its cake and eat it. 
For can, sure. can we have the fruit of worship and faith? And really the part of mission that makes our lives more comfortable by the Christianization of our environment. Yeah. Rather than, and, and we've kind of excluded, we've tried to do it a different way. So it, yeah, there's, there's something deeply challenging about these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they, and it's, I mean, it's a part of our story. It's the one that we live in, in the West. Um, but it's also something in light of dealing with a crucified Messiah who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, we, we get confronted by, well, that's not comfort. That is definitely the opposite of that, mm. you know. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna finish with just like read a couple of sentences from one of my main gals, Elena Stump, who she's actually written a few chapters in her book on the atonement uh, about the cry of dereliction and about... Um, how can you will what God wills? The, mm. the other, like lots oh, of yeah. these things. Um, I don't agree with everything, but very, very thought provoking. But um, she says this, she says, uh, in this cry, it points to all the psyches of all human beings pouring into the human mind of Christ, which is open to them in some like special, unique way in his suffering and dying. And this openness on Christ's part during his crucifixion to all human psyches is his contribution to what is needed for mutual indwelling between God and human persons. Insofar as Christ is in the Father, then insofar as human persons are in Christ, they also are in the Father with the Son. And since the Holy Spirit is in every person in grace, in a person in grace there is the fulfillment of the prayer of Christ that there might be mutual indwelling between God and Christ's disciples as there is between Christ and the Father all through the Holy Spirit. So Mm. it's this very Trinitarian. So there's the experience of forsakenness, but far from it being a threat, a fracturing our view of the Trinity and their relationships, is actually a beautiful instance of them working together in love mm-hmm. through the experience of uh, brokenness and separation mm-hmm. to create a way for us out of our experience of mm-hmm. brokenness and separation. So if you want a top reading tri- tip for Good Friday <laughs> and you're up for reading bits of a book you'll really have to pay attention to if you read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bring, bring your pencil and your highlighter. Then, uh, yeah, take a look at Eleanor Stump's book on the atonement. Right, that's nearly an hour, so that's enough for today. Yeah. I hope you're having an amazing Easter. And um, the, and Tim mentioned the Stations of the Cross thing. Uh, if you haven't been able to come to church to do it, and especially if you're listening to this after Easter and it's now gone, um, it's on the website. Mm. Like there's no, I think, Jesus will be okay with you contemplating the cross after Easter, so yeah. it'll still be fine. Yep. So I'm going to put the link uh, to it, and it's an exercise you can still do, um, and just do it on your phone or something. So that'll be in the notes. All right, have a good week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the House of Learning podcast. This podcast is produced by At Jesus Church College, based at Westside at Jesus Church in Portland, Oregon. AJC College trains and mobilizes the next generation of kingdom leaders through an accredited four-year degree 
in biblical studies with an emphasis on leadership and formation. We combine classroom learning with mentoring and ministry apprenticeship for a third of the cost of traditional college. To find out more, go to ajccollege.org or follow us on Instagram to find out if this is where God could be calling you to explore your calling. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share it with someone. And if you have a question you'd like us to chat about, please let us know. You can email us at podcast at ajccollege.org. If you can, send us a 20-second audio recording saying who you are and where you're from, along with your question, and we'd love to include it in a future episode.